Welcome to Blanket Fort Radio Theater, a storytelling initiative from SIU Press in collaboration with the SIU Creative Writing Program and WSIU. In our last episode... In 1913, Charlie Berger moved to the small mining community of Ledford, where he quickly ingratiated himself by selling liquor to the locals and providing them with employment. However, not all were fond of his breaking the law. A Night of Another Sort Prohibition Days and Charlie Berger by Gary Deneal Chapter 2, Part 2 For many people, 1916 meant trenches in France. But for Charlie, it was the year he arrested a man and had five ducks and seven geese stolen. The poultry was taken in the early part of December on three different occasions. Not content with their meager haul, the thieves then raided the coops of one of Berger's neighbors. The other incident occurred at Havana, Illinois. It illustrates very clearly what was to be a curious trait of this very genuine gangster, namely his willingness, even eagerness, to cooperate with the local authorities. In the latter part of 1915, three fellows robbed a store in Carrier Mills, only to be captured a short time later. Two of the men were convicted and jailed, but the third, John Weger, was lucky enough to get Lige Gaskins to pay his bond. Weger then disappeared. Later, in a letter sent to some friends or relatives in Saline County, the fugitive wrote that Canada was his new home, but that soon he was planning to enlist in the army. He said he wanted to go overseas. These stirring words were probably penned in Havana, Illinois, where Uyghur was subsequently captured by Charlie Berger. According to the telegram received by Deputy Sheriff Tom Russell, Berger and his prisoner were returning to Harrisburg the evening of April 25, 1916. This curious account has yet another twist. Berger and Weger apparently were close friends, or at least enough so for Weger to serve as the witness on two of Berger's pension questionnaires, dated December 15, 1915, and February 22, 1916. The Harrisburg Daily Register article of April 25th states that Weger left Saline County some time ago. This capture of his former pal shows Berger at his ambitious best, booze vendor, Gambler, operator of a quote, house, but through it all, always a pal of the Saline County law enforcement personnel. On the night of December 3, 1917, there occurred a more dramatic example of the bond existing between Berger and the lawmen. At about 6 p.m., the telephone jingled at the Saline County Jail, and Sheriff George Russell answered. He was told that a man and a woman, both drunk, were causing trouble at the Big Four Depot in Carrier Mills. Deputies Harvran and Tom Russell went to the scene of the disturbance. Meanwhile, another call came. 
This time, the voice on the other end said the couple had boarded the seven o'clock car and were heading north. When the sheriff finally got word to his deputies of this change in plans, they managed to get aboard the company streetcar number four. The sheriff instructed them to meet car number seven at a designated crossing, arrest the pair, and then transfer them to the freight car. When number seven pulled in, however, the deputies were told that the elusive two had disembarked at Ledford. When Ran and Russell arrived at the coal mining village, they were met by Charlie Berger, who was only too happy to be of service. After he told them the inebriated pair had walked north from the depot, the two officers resumed the chase, this time on foot. By the time they reached the pauper crossing southwest of Harrisburg, it became quite clear to the officers that they would have better luck back at Ledford. They managed to hitch a ride back there, only to discover that the subjects of all this fuss were, at that moment, celebrating in a saloon operated by Tom Cripp Yates, a young roughneck of local repute, against whom charges of burglary and larceny had been lodged. The two deputies slipped up to either a side or the back door. You come in that door and we'll burn you up, someone said when they demanded admittance to Yates' establishment. The threat apparently carried the ring of truth. Moran went to a place to call Sheriff Russell in Harrisburg while Tom Russell waited. Ran, upon his return, saw that some of the patrons were running out the front door. There was no time to relay the sheriff's order, which was to wait until he arrived. Reaching the door just as the couple was coming out, Ran took charge of the man while Russell took charge of the woman. Off they went to the depot, Ran and his man taking the lead while Russell and the woman followed closely behind. As they neared the depot, the woman began to struggle. I'm not going another step farther with you. Just then, Crip Yates stepped up. See here, Russell. Let's try to smooth things over. Let her go. You know me. Yes, I know you too well. You get back and don't interfere here. Russell snapped. To emphasize that remark, he gave the saloon keeper a shove. Just then, Charlie Berger was approaching the crowd. When he got close enough to see the pistol in Yates's hand, pointed under the deputy's arm, Berger leaped for the man with the gun. Turning, Yates fired one shot that tore through Berger's coat. That shot was followed by three others, but now Berger was doing the shooting. Aware that his bullets had taken effect, all three shots were in the chest. Berger tossed the pistol aside, grabbed Yates around the waist, and held on until the mortally wounded man fell to the ground. On their way back to the Harrisburg jail with the drunken pair, the officers took the wounded man to the operating table of Dr. C. W. Turner. About half an hour following the shooting, Yates died. There are, of course, other accounts of Yates's death. Berger's family doctor, Joe Leitner, said, Charlie made arrangements with some of the officers to go down and arrest Cripp his competitor in the liquor business. When they went down there, Charlie joined them on some pretext. Berger sent the officers away. The rest of the story goes something like this. While the officers were gone, Charlie shot Cripp. They brought Cripp into Dr. Turner's, and he was still alive. Charlie came up then. Cripp told him what a yellow streak he had up his back. Cripp died. One of those who helped carry Yates into Dr. Turner's office disagreed. According to Ralph Pollister, the dying man never said a word. 
Willard St. John, who also knew Berger quite well, was convinced that at least two of the three shots were fired after Yates fell. He recalled a conversation with Berger about the shooting. Why did you do it? St. John asked. I wanted to show it was in self-defense, that I was afraid of him, Berger replied. In an undertone, he added, I was afraid of him. If any fear remained as to his fate, a glance at Harrisburg's Daily Register of Tuesday, December 4th, surely eased his mind. Although they regretted very much to do so, Berger was also locked up and is now in the local jail. He was not there long, however, thanks to the decision of the coroner's jury. Moments after the evidence was presented in the crowded courtroom, the jury gave its verdict as follows. We, the jury, find that George Thomas Yates came to his death by a gunshot wound at the hands of Charles Berger, and we further find that the said Charles Berger was justified in the shooting. To the prisoner, these were sweet words, and the fact that at least two of the six who found him guiltless were his close friends, J. Milo Pruitt and Med Ledford, made them sweeter still. Deputy Sheriff John D. Cummins, who would be elected sheriff of Saline County in 1918, was another juror, and still another was H.E. Wills, the next county clerk. Three bullets had eliminated Berger's competitor, and had won him kind words from a local newspaper. Soon, however, his good guy, bad guy image would be tarnished by an incident in Massac County. On the night of March 29, 1918, a Ford and a Buick were stolen in Metropolis. The Ford was found the following morning at a Baptist church near town, where it had apparently run out of juice. On April 19th, Metropolis Chief of Police Isaac Brannan arrested Charles Berger, accompanying the two back to Massac County were Berger's attorney, Aquila Lewis, and D.P. Bybee, who paid his $1,000 bond. On April 22nd, the Buick, along with two other automobiles, was finally located in Berger's barn at Ledford. This new evidence seemed sufficient for Metropolis authorities to issue another warrant. This time, the Saline County officers said Berger could not be located. On April 28th, the day before his preliminary hearing on the first charge, Berger was finally nailed by Harv Ran at the Big Four Depot and Carrier Mills. Just as the southbound passenger train pulled in, Ran, Tom Russell, and Will Riston hopped aboard. Each man was to search a designated area. Looking through the smoker, Ran found his man, along with Bybee and Attorney Lewis. The fiery-tempered Lewis was so uncooperative that he was later arrested for remarks he made that day on the train. Arriving in Harrisburg on the evening train, Massac County Sheriff Orso Shirk and Metropolis Chief of Police Ike Brannan took charge of Berger, who at that time was in the Saline County Jail. Not satisfied with this one arrest, the Saline County officers proceeded to raid Berger's restaurant at Ledford. There, according to Harv Ran, the bar was supplied with everything necessary to serve most any kind of a drink a man might call for. Bottles and kegs were emptied outside, leaving a whiskey odor to the village and, according to some witnesses, a head on some of the nearby streams. Next, they raided the Big Four Depot at Ledford. The man found four whiskey barrels, 16 cases of whiskey and half-pint bottles, 25 kegs of beer, and what was once a case of champagne. 
The agent said that Berger had receded all the wet goods and that all the shipping charges had been paid. The haul was brought to Harrisburg and poured into the gutters. On all fronts, it seemed that Charlie's problems were mounting. The chief of police of St. Louis wrote Ike Brannan that the suspect had purchased name tags and license plates from a St. Louis firm. Indications were that with Charlie Berger's almost certain conviction following his upcoming trial, an important car theft ring was about to be broken. Held on the second warrant, Berger now saw his bond raised to $5,000. This time, though, Sheriff Russell believed it was in the prisoner's best interests that the bonds not be filled, since he was wanted by authorities in Williamson, Franklin, Washington, and Johnson counties in Illinois, and also by authorities in Knox County, Indiana. He had been busy. There are no records to show the length of Berger's stay in the Massac County Jail, but he was certainly there long enough to make donations to some of the local charities and to conduct himself, quote, as a model prisoner. What bearing his philanthropy may have had on the trial is not clear, but certainly it did him no harm in the eyes of local citizens. Chief of Police Ike Brannan, for instance, thought him a prince among prisoners and was to say so in later years when Berger's reputation as a gunman was greatly enhanced. Brannon failed to mention that the prisoner had managed to buy two jackasses from a metropolis man and that he promptly gave them to the police chief's young sons. Naturally, the boys were sad when their dad made them give the animals back. A few Saline Countians thought they caught a familiar refrain when they heard of Charlie's doings in that old river town. Yes, he was up to his old tricks again, winning over with charm and greenbacks those who should have been clear-eyed enough to see through his strategy. Similarly, there was familiar refrain regarding some of the witnesses slated to testify. H.E. Wills, who had recently served on the coroner's jury following the Yates killing, was to have been summoned to testify for the defendant, but there was nothing to indicate he did so. Another member of that jury, J. Milo Pruitt, was subpoenaed to testify both for the defendant and for the state, but his travel voucher is given only for the latter. The man who may have owed his life to Berger's quick trigger, Tom Russell, was summoned forth by the state. Oddly enough, Sheriff George Russell's wife was subpoenaed by Berger's attorneys. If the list of witnesses seems confusing, the Metropolis Herald's account of the trial's outcome added its own touch of uncertainty by referring to the defendant as James Berger. It was found that an agreement could not be reached as to the innocence or guilt of Berger. He was immediately taken in charge by the sheriff of Saline County and taken back to Harrisburg, where it is said that there are several charges against him for selling liquor. Thus concluded the car-stealing case that attracted more than usual notice. Next time. He said we were getting married. I started to cry. I wanted to go home. Thank you all for listening to Blanket Fort Radio Theater. Please follow us on Facebook and visit BlanketFortRadioTheater.com to learn more about the project. Build your own Blanket Fort and tell a story.